Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. As usual, I'm your host, Brandy Miller, and this is our last episode of our series on white supremacy. So we're ending with a make it make sense, a question and response time that I'm joined for by my friends, Sean Watkins and Erna Hackett. You might notice that the quality of the audio is a little bit variable, and it's because we recorded it together, and frankly, after 52 episodes, you'd think I wouldn't be a noob at this anymore, but I've been doing all of this from my bedroom, so please be patient with us as you may have to adjust your volume a little bit to hear some of the responses to these questions. Thank you so much to those of you who asked questions. We really appreciate it and want to continue to have dialogue with folks as we go along in this journey. I also want to give a specific shout out to patrons. You all truly make this podcast possible. Your things for this quarter are in the mail finally, since I'm a little late on a couple of those. Thank you for bearing with me in my life transitions. I really do appreciate it. Also know that you will get a couple of bonus episodes while we're on a break from between now and November, and we'll also have a workshop on how to interpret the Bible coming up very soon. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for everything you do. And we'll see everyone back in November as we launch our series on patriarchy and purity culture that you do for the podcast so many things are already happening yeah. okay, okay. I'm, swe- I'm sweaty already I know should I open up some windows yeah, let's, yeah, let's, open open up, let's get some cross flow we're not gonna make take back everything the colonizers stole from us including the wind including the wind pastors aren't doing their work just start with that. <laughs> I know, right? Do Church. we have any pastors? We have, we have preachers. We don't have really pastors. Seminary anymore. is fundamentally a colonizing endeavor. That's why they're all colonizers after they go to seminary. We say that with degree. <laughs> Wait, do we have a topic? <laughs> is it in the free-for-all episode? Oh, we, we have a plan. Oh, okay. All right. Sorry. 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 We'll be good. We'll be good. We're Maybe. ready. Okay. We are obedient. All right, everyone. Thank you for being here, both of you. Here being your home. Erna's so. house in person. Is this Come the on. first podcast where we are recording with people in person? You and I have done this once before down here. Mm-hmm. Yes. But then we did a bad job, so we redid it. Yes, we did. <laughs> but not this one. This one is full of focus from the jump. We'll That's never right. need to re-record That's right. this. That's right. So we are just closing out our series on white supremacy. There's going to be more. There always is because the caucasity never stops. But as we close out this season, I wanted to take some time to do a Q&A with friends mm-hmm. to help to just make sense of some of the things that are coming up as the season ends. And so I just want to name that as we do a Q&A or a Q&R question and response or question and advice, that we don't have all the answers to things. We certainly don't. Um, but we want to model that dialogue helps us to know what's going on in our own lives and to seek wisdom from others. So just know that you can do this with your friends and people around you. And our hope is that you would just feel really seen, heard, and maybe a little bit less alone in the chaos of everything that's going on. So I'm joined today by my friends Erna Kim Hackett and Sean Michael Watkins. Y'all do the three names. (laughs) (laughs) Google the names. (laughs) Let them know. (laughs) (laughs) She regrets asking us on already. You're going to see elements of our friendship. (laughs) You know what? That's how we survive white supremacy. So we're going to let you in on the survival practice of friendship and laughter. We have cried together, laughed together, and learned together. You will hear them all this evening. Yes. That that is true. (laughs) So I just want to name, too, that the advice and questions range the whole gamut of things that there could be. And so... 
We're going to talk about relationships, systems, our relationship to systems, the divine, Bible and resources, which we've got a lot of thoughts about. Um, there's kind of general quandaries or issues that are going on for y'all. And so I'll try to put in the show notes where questions start and end or where sections start and end. So if you're like, I can't with these people, then you only can for the things that you want to. <gasps> How dare they? <laughs> Is there anything that y'all want to say or jump in before you go? I could ask you the normal question, but I think we'll just no. pass through that one today. <laughs> Let's just go right in. Well, I want to I want to start us on a question that I felt um, really tender about mm-hmm. um, relating to someone's relationship with God, because mm-hmm. I feel like for many of us, that's the first thing that comes into question, even when people are the thing that push us away. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one, this question is kind of long, but I want to read the whole thing because I think it encompasses a lot of things that a lot of us have experienced. Um, so Natalie writes, TLDR, how do I trust myself to know the divine? Mm. I'm a Gen Z who just graduated college, went through InterVarsity, and then sort of lost my faith in the last 18 months while in college because of everything the pandemic exposed in my local church and the larger evangelical community. You are not alone there. Mm-mm. I had been so in love with Jesus and have all of these experiences with God that were formative in shaping me and my community. My initial response to all of the shit of 2020 was wondering what God would say, but as I watched the churches that raised me respond to everything and listen to new podcasts and faith voices, I wondered if maybe I didn't know how God would respond at all. Maybe I had never really known the divine in truth. The last year has been incredibly painful and also important to learn from reclaiming my theology and others about all of the ways that white supremacy and systems of oppression and dominance have tangled themselves into my understanding of God. Divesting from that has required me to divest from God. For me, the two were linked and I lost my pathway to Jesus, to prayer, in the process of deconstruction or whatever word the pastors prefer to co-op these days. (laughs) Subtle shit, I like it. So much shade. I've seen more and encountered truth in a deeper way. And I don't want to go back. But recently, I've been remembering the ways I knew Jesus before. Mm. And however much I find meaning in justice, wholeness, and community, I can't seem to forget God. I miss Jesus. Mm. I miss the Spirit. But I don't trust myself to know the divine. Look what we, the church, specifically the white church, has done every time we claim to have found God. True. Look at the harm. I don't trust myself to know the divine because I got it so wrong before. I don't want to be part of a system of a harm and oppression, but I can't forget Jesus. I can't forget the things I saw and heard that felt like life. So how do I trust myself to know divine and truth? Can I believe any of what I knew of God was real? I feel like I'm stretching across two things that feel like truth and the tension is threatening to break me, but I can't let go of either one. Thanks for the podcast. I listen every Thursday on my drive and it's what kept me going during the pandemic. Natalie. I find that question to be so moving because I think it's so relatable and it's so honest and it's sincere. And at the heart of it, I hear... I don't want to lose Jesus. And that's really important. And I want to just agree with that. Because I think if we sit in the process of seeing white supremacy and patriarchy and how it has taken Christianity captive, if in teasing those two things apart, we lose Jesus, then honestly, that means white supremacy wins. White supremacy wins because they have taken Jesus from us and Jesus belongs to us. Mm -hmm. Jesus belongs to women. Jesus belongs to people on the margins. Jesus belongs to refugees. Jesus belongs to people who have experienced state-sanctioned police violence. And so don't let white supremacy win. Mm -hmm. And hold on to that desire and... I do believe that there are beautiful ways to learn to connect with creator and connect with Jesus. And I think there's a a kind of a myth of like, oh, if the way I received it wasn't perfect, then it's all so flawed. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to keep. But I just, 
No, because even as we learn, I hope 10 years from now, we look back to where we are here and see that there's so many more lenses that we have to keep moving closer to creator. So it's not about perfection or this flawless understanding. It's about humbly, and that's what I hear in this, humility to to continue to grow and transform as you know more. And I can talk about this later, but one of the ways I think we do that is instead of feeling like our bodies are against us or that we have to press down what our bodies are telling us, I think part of how we experience Jesus is learning to actually listen to what our bodies are telling us and learning to trust that versus thinking that our bodies and our walk with Jesus are at odds with each other. Because that's the primary framework we've been given. So those are some first thoughts that really really wonderful and beautiful question. Yeah, yeah. yeah I 1,000% agree. I think the only thing that I would add to that is, I think Natalie asked this question about how, does she, how can she trust the divine or recognizing uh, that she can um, be aware of those things. I think you have to do it in community. That's one of the things that I realized from my own self as I was kind of navigating that crisis that, uh, that really Natalie mentions. There are, there's a core group of people that I have in my life, both in Austin where I live and then folks that are around the country that as I'm trying to wrestle, what is it that God is saying and calling me to do? That if I don't have clarity about those things or I feel confused about them, then I take it outside of myself and I ask some people who I know and trust. I know where they are on their journey. I trust their heart and their character. And so that's one of the ways in which I think it's been instrumental for me to be able to figure out and kind of work out my own theology in this next chapter and season of my life. I try not to do those things as much in isolation. I really want to invite my friends to walk with me and wrestle, help me wrestle with those deep things. And it's in the midst of that wrestling um, that I really recognize what the divine may be saying to me and what direction he's calling me to go in. Yeah, that's good. And I think one of the things that you talked about that I'll add that matters a lot is just that like Ernie, you were saying, we're not who we've always been, and that's yeah. a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is really easy to, when we're deconstructing or decolonizing our faith or realizing the ways that white supremacy isn't everything, to assume that everything about our spirituality was bad or wrong or yeah. evil or invalid. And mm-hmm. I hear some of that kind of sense that, like, maybe you feel like your experience is invalid or not mm-hmm. real somehow. When I just think that, like, if the story of Jesus is that God shows up in human form in the midst of a dark time to mm-hmm. be with people who are doing all kinds of things, then the divine can be found, Jesus can be found in the most chaotic situations that white supremacy sets up for us in our early Mm -hmm. experiences of God. And so I think you can trust that your experiences were real and good, even if they don't look the same now. Because I think for me, it was really hard to say, oh, I actually don't, I don't hear from the creator in the same way that I used to, or I don't Mm. do spirituality the same way I used to. Was that real? I'm like, yeah, and it worked for me for a time. That's That's right. right. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And it's okay to evolve and to change and probably necessary to evolve and change. And in different seasons of our life, and Ernie, you talk about this a lot, like different seasons of our life require different things of our spirituality. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think one thing I've observed is even if you people weren't beginning to see how white supremacy was, you know, had taken their Christianity captive, when you hit your 30s, your spirituality is going to change anyway, yep. right? Absolutely. So um, there's a, often early on, there's a lot of like, tell me what to do. Is this right? Is this wrong? Like, what about this? Is this right or is this wrong? And then over time, it makes sense that you would grow up and mature. And instead of, is this right or is this wrong? You have to move into a phase where you make decisions out of who you've been formed into. And often there's a resistance to that because then that means you can't go, oh, God told me to do it. It's adulting. And you have to take responsibility for your decisions. And it's a more, it's a different type of relationship with God. 
it's for often for many people there when that transition would have happened is also when they start deconstructing. Yes. So it feels like the loss of that old way of connecting with God is equated with deconstructing, but it's yes. actually would have happened anyway. Yeah. But then when they get conflated, it becomes, you feel like you're losing everything at one yes. time. Yeah. So moving from a highly verbal, word-oriented type of prayer to something that might be more visual or arts-oriented or embodied or connected to creator, that's a very organic thing that happens in your yes. 30s anyway. Yeah. Yes. And the last thing I would say to that end is, um, I'll actually talk about scripture a little bit because I love that passage in Mark where he, where he says, like, a, a farmer plants a seed and a day and a night passes, and though he knows not how it grows, and then all of the parts grow and he harvests it when the time has come. And it's this image of spirituality that is both highly strategic and highly mysterious. Mm -hmm. And I think that evangelicalism, white evangelicalism specifically, teaches us that spirituality is all about strategy. Mm -hmm. That if you do the right things, if you input the right things, if you deposit the right things, you will withdraw the right things emotionally, spiritually, in all kinds of different ways. And I think that many of us, as we get older, have to lean into the mystery that our, that our image of the divine gets bigger and bigger, and we have fewer answers and fewer formulas to make sense of what's happening, because our lives also get more complex. And yeah. so yeah. I think that we can't just settle for simplicity in those things, or expect that we'd have the same emotional responses or physical responses to things that we did when we were 14 at a youth group camp or something. You know, there's there's a lot of reasons we might have felt the things that we felt. Oh, yes. My 14-year-old mm, Erna should not be trusted. Um... <laughs> I will also add that I think that for many, it's as if deconstructing is an end game or an end process. Mm -hmm. We do that so how we love mm -hmm. each other and how we move in the world is more healing, more loving, more liberated, and more integrated. And so it isn't let me deconstruct to perfection and then start to love. You know, and I know Brandy talks about this, but it's you know, you know so much more now. Mm -hmm. So just try to live into that with love yeah. as best you can. And I think sometimes we want that perfection because we want to take the um, kind of the dependence of mm -hmm. it, the in, the relationalness of it, kind of the ongoing conversation with God that it requires to just move the best we can in what yeah. we know. Mm -hmm. We kind of want to get like perfectly deconstructed and then move forward in this yeah. perfectly liberated way. And that actually is throughout the Bible attention. People yeah. want yeah. to erase the conversation and journey with God for clarity. Yeah. And God it actually resists that repeatedly. Yes. Yeah, there was a friend of mine that um, she was a part of our church in Austin. She got ready to leave. And we stood up and affirmed her uh, and she was getting ready to depart. And one of the things that um, one of my friends, Chedrick, was saying that, you know, uh, as infants, we have to be fed all the time. Uh, but a sign of maturity is when you learn how to cook for yourself, you learn how to feed yourself. And I think, Erna, as I hear you talking, it's kind of the exact same thing. Is I think we're in the beginnings of our faith journey. We're taught so much. <laughs> we're taught so much about faith and life. And as we get older, <laughs> we recognize, like, no, part of it is maturity is learning how to, to feed ourselves, right? We get to wrestle with these things, and it's not going to be perfect. I think especially during the pandemic, some of us have cooked, and I'm like, this is horrible. I'm glad <laughs> nobody is around to eat this, right? But you get better, I think, in those things. And the exact same thing comes with our faith. We learn how to be able to wrestle with things, who to be able to wrestle with, or who to cook with, if you will, for the purposes of maturity and growth and development, and who creator God is forming us into. So yeah. I just want to be able to add that. And then the last thing I would say is like, I don't think we're ever too good for the basics of spirituality, but sometimes we need to let go of those things for a time yeah. to mm -hmm. heal and to 
recognize the harm that's been inflicted on us through things, mm-hmm. and then come back to those things with gentleness later in time. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Natalie, we just feel for you. Yes. We yes. appreciate your posture yes. and just feel like you're in the right place. Yeah. Um, and that that place of kind of dissonance and pain and questioning is hard mm-hmm. and it is good and it won't last forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so I want to move on and just talk about a question that someone needs some advice on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also want to name for folks that as we ask questions, that some of the portions could be triggering to folks. Just be gentle with yourself as you listen, knowing that yes. different questions might impact you in different ways because it is your situation or because it's about your community or people mm-hmm. group. And so I just want to name that we're not trying to act like these are all neutral questions that we're mm-hmm. just jumping into in this way. And so this mm-hmm. question feels um, included in that. Mm-hmm. So this person says, here's a situation I'd love advice on. I'm a part of a small group I joined before starting this journey of deconstruction or reclaiming my theology. A lot of my views have changed and I'm getting less and less from the group, but it still remains one of the only sources of social interaction I get with any kind of regularity. Mm. I'm trying to branch out and find new community, and that's so challenging in a pandemic, and I'm so very lonely. (laughs) I don't want to lose my only friends. Mm. I worry, though, that continuing to stay in the group is condoning some of their beliefs. Mm. Whenever homophobic or transphobic comments get made, I always try to challenge their thinking and help them to see the violence in what they're saying, but I avoid directly saying that I support LGBTQ inclusion because I don't want to shut down the conversation, also because I'm that they kick me out. Oh, oh honey. Wow. Am I betraying my LGBTQ friends by not being more clear? If I do need to be more direct and thus leave, how do I avoid being completely isolated? Oh, I just want to give you a hug because that is so real. It's so real. Oh. <laughs> We're all just feeling that yeah. with yeah. you. Yeah. I appreciate I appreciate wanting to do right by your queer fam. And I appreciate how isolating it is. I Honestly, I feel like if it's some of the only social interaction you're getting, I wouldn't cut yourself off from that because mm-hmm. I just feel like that's going to hurt your mental health. Yes. Yeah. I think that you can start building bridges into other communities. Mm-hmm. I think you can start creating a web of connection but I just feel a lot of compassion for how incredibly hard it is to build new connection during pandemic and Mm -hmm. I feel like it's okay to sort of be in an in-between for a while yes that's my first thought yeah I wanted to like are there old friends that you can reconnect with um I I hear Arna uh I yeah I don't know I just felt it and I felt like that's if that's the only world that you're drinking from for connection and community it makes sense but it also I think even in your writing, it already feels like it's toxic or becoming toxic if it hasn't already. And so I just wonder, like, are there old friends that you can reconnect with, folks that you haven't had a chance to talk to since the pandemic started? Is there a different wall of social interaction and community that you can drink from if it's socially distanced or over Zoom or just over the phone in some capacity? Because I do think the longer you stay, the more your allergy to whatever type of ethos or community they have in that in that group is you're not going to be able to stay there for too much longer if it i think if it's if it's bubbling up inside of you at this level i think it's only a matter of time before it hits a tipping point and so kind of what Erin was saying how do you start to look for these other places so that the transition can be smoother for you and your mental health doesn't take a hit in that process and i guess the one thing i would say is that you may want to stay in that community like i can hear some tension in here that sounds a little bit like Maybe you kind of like these people and even in their problematicness is what makes you not want to be around them. But there's a reason you're with them that may not just be the pandemic. True. And so I wonder if there are ways to engage with the group dynamic that could be helpful to where you could be more honest. Like, does your community have any guidelines or values around conflict? Do you mm-hmm. have conflict at all? Mm-hmm. Do you have community guidelines on what you 
do or do not bring or how to confront each other in spaces. And I think that starting with some of those conversations, in my experience with student communities at least, can be really helpful. And saying, hey, I've noticed that I feel challenged when I'm here sometimes by some of the comments that, I, that I'm having a hard time with. Yeah. And I'm wondering if we can talk about what it looks like for us to disagree or to be in different places but still be together. Mm -hmm. Because even if you don't stay long term, those kinds of skills and community are really helpful, not just for you, but for the people in the group who... Again, Christians be out here saying whatever they want all the time with impunity and really do need to gain some skills to say, hey, my words can have impact. Yeah. And that doesn't, it's not just like covered by the grace of Jesus. So I do wonder if there's some things around community culture and dynamics that wouldn't make it so that you felt like you had to be indirect or lie or feel like you're betraying your friends, but rather say, hey, I'm showing up in this space. It's problematic. I understand that. And there are ways that. I'm trying to create a community culture where we can actually have that conversation. I don't know. Is that a bad idea? For some reason, I pictured that this group was Asian American. <laughs> and I don't actually, and then I realized, I don't know if that's true. I'm just maybe just projecting my own ethnicity onto this group. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know a lot of Asian American groups that talk through. But then again, I don't know if that's true. Um, I would also want to just say, I don't know if it's a, I think that's worth exploring. Yeah. I also think that there is this dynamic where it's like you can't be in relationship pe with people that you don't totally agree with. Mm -hmm. To me, I do have friendship with people where I would say we're not in theological agreement, but they do know what I think yeah. theologically. Yes. Yeah. My litmus test is often, let's say, around this with like the LGBTQ community. If somebody who were queer were in the room... Am I speaking in the same way? Am I yes. am I um, as clear about what is violent, what is hurtful, what is dehumanizing? And if I can be in that space and with integrity, not conform, you know, mm -hmm. to yeah. kind of a, a, a dehumanizing position, then I feel like it's okay because we do have a complex web of relationships. Yes. Yeah. I do think you want a bigger web, but... That's a litmus test for me, if that yeah, makes sense. That's good. Yeah, that makes sense. I think for me, I, I think as I'm listening to us dialogue and discuss, I'm thinking about our question. I think you cannot be rooted in the system that you want to save, and I think that's the the duality that I feel like this is one of her only sources of connection and community, or probably the deepest one during the pandemic. And at the same time, too, um, she recognizes the love that she has for the queer community and the ways in which this group is, in many ways, allergic to that. And so I think she's going to these folks, she loves the space and the ways in which she's providing for, but there's this deep conviction that she has that's not in alignment with the group. And so I just, I think there's there's the tension there. What does it mean to be able to say, again, like how can you expand some of those relationships in different capacities just for the purposes of making sure that if you want to be in this group of friends, that that's not the only place that you're drawing from, I think, for your social interaction and community. Because if she does have to challenge them, I agree having those types of community ethics or kind of raising that type of question. What happens if there is pushback or if there is disagreement uh, and the group says, no, I don't want her to feel like she's cut off from that. So I think, how do you do both? How does she just make sure she's got different places that she's engaging with? And that may even give her, I think, some of that, um, that confidence and courage that you were talking about to raise the bar and have a difficult conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, I'm going to pivot here for a second, too, because you did say in it that you're afraid they'll kick you out. And if that's the case, it's already not a safe place. Yeah, that's real. That's Straight real. up. Like, right. if real. you're constantly fearful that you are going to get kicked out of a space, like, that there's probably way more tension beyond the LGBTQ plus conversation Absolutely. that's happening that has informed how you see that. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, it is very possible to be lonely in a group 
in a room full of yeah. people. Mm, I know that's and yeah. I just want to name that that's a reality and that sometimes we have to find places outside of like our physical spaces. And I don't wish that for you, but I also yeah. recognize that like if you feel constantly unsafe in a place, yeah. it might be time to remove yourself from that space. And that's an option that you have. And like, it doesn't sound like it's what you want because of the loneliness. And that's mm. so understandable, yeah. but it feels like there's a tension really between loneliness and, isolation and fear yeah and and i feel for you in that um i do also wonder if there's like one person in the group that you can talk to that you could have some kind of solidarity with even Mm. if they don't theologically agree i wonder if there's a way to have a conversation with someone and and name the tensions that you're feeling and be present and say hey i actually feel these different things and if there's not a single person you can do that with i feel like that says a lot about the space itself agreed I'm also just trying to litmus test because I'm not queer. I'm like, am I like green lighting dynamics that I would find problematic if the example had been like, I'm in a group that constantly says like anti-Asian racist things. Yeah. I think if that were the question, I would have the same litmus test, which is like, are you speaking up against it? But also I'd be like, maybe don't keep those people as your primary friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah, I, yeah, I think yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I was coming from with the, like, Brandy, you said it perfectly. I use the language of being kicked out because that's been my experience when we talk about race mm-hmm. and ethnicity and culture, right? To uh, disturb the peace or rock the boat typically means I'm going to have to leave at some point, yeah. right? So, again, it, it's an excellent necessity to be able to say. It's asking the group some hard questions and see what emerges. Yeah. Okay, well, the next question is kind of related to this hard conversations, theological disagreement bit. So, okay. <laughs> um, so someone asks, how do you talk to people who don't seem to understand how systemic and ingrained white supremacy and racism actually is? Like, how do you, how do you talk to people who don't understand that? Um, yep. I don't. <laughs> Next question. Because I I am reclaiming my time and my mental health. (laughs) Honestly, I always have questions about who. Like, who are these people? Are they random people on the internet? Is it Bobby that you went to high school with? Because there is a whole sphere of folks where I'm like, it's those conversations, do they really change people? They just usually devolve into arguments. So I feel like there's a small pocket of people who I do consider like, these people are my business, my family, Asian Americans. Right. And so that's why I lead cohorts for Asian American women around anti-blackness. That's why I consider my family members my business because no one else is going to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And it is my responsibility to try to press that conversation forward. But I don't consider just every person out in these streets to be my responsibility. So that would be my first question is who? Yes. And if they, what is the nature of your relationship and is there any kind of openness at all? Yes. And I think that for me, oftentimes, especially when I'm thinking about organizational cultures, we want people to change from zero to a hundred mm-hmm. and most organizations or spaces are willing to do about 5% yes. in terms of change, yes. but we want to always push past that. And so I'm always asking, what is the place where they're willing to budge or move or shift? And can I tap at that thing? And so for a lot of Christian communities, like there are a lot of on-ramps that you can use to talk about oppression that aren't just like, hey, you a bunch of white supremacists. <laughs> because that's like probably not going to work super well. Yeah. And so I think I, I have some, some thought that, I don't know, we, not everyone's your responsibility. And when we have the conversations, sometimes we come into them so heated mm-hmm. that the how is actually 
more of a emotional management mm-hmm. than it is a strategic engagement. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we're like, what's what are the best words? What are the right things? But almost no racially problematic conversation I have lands like in an emotionally neutral place where I come with like my pocketbook and list of like facts and details that are going right. to convince that person. <laughs> and usually that other person is heated about the conversation too. Mm-hmm. And one of this is a this is a tangential a little bit, but is related. As I've been doing some research on how people who are anti-vaccine have come to get vaccines, it's because they have a real compassionate conversation with someone that they trust. Mm. And I think that many of us come in a little hot to mm-hmm. these conversations <laughs> in a way that doesn't allow people to ask real questions that they have yeah. from things that have been indoctrinated into them really deeply. And so I can't expect someone who's been racist for 40 years of their life to right. suddenly not right. be racist because I yelled at them once about it or right. because I gave them the right facts. It is different to have a compassionate conversation where we seek to listen, even if it's like caucasity and nonsense, mm-hmm. because it usually is, but to have places where we can actually dialogue, because I don't know that anyone's ever been argued into being more no. righteous or just. No. And I think that many of us are asking for rhetorical talking points yeah. when really we actually have to do some of our own self-work to have the compassion to actually be in those conversations with the people who it is our responsibility to talk to. Yeah, I 1000% agree. I Rhetorical talking points, they don't work at all. I've also found too, um, narrative story humanizing the people in the stories tends to have the most powerful experience so kind of earned our laughing at first i don't have those conversations with people anymore for my own mental health uh, i don't debate the realities of racism it's i don't waste my time on that anymore for my own health i can't um, i think when i'm in places personally and professionally where there's an option to do it uh, one of the stories that i always tell or i've started telling really uh, is a george floyd story and I mention that because um, even though he was killed in Minneapolis, he was born and raised in Houston. And he went to the same high school I did. He went to Jack Hayes High School in the heart of Third Ward in Houston, Texas. And a couple of days after he was killed, uh, his second grade teacher, Mrs. Sexton, was on the television uh, in Houston. She kept all the papers from her elementary kids. And my mom called me and she said, Sean, your first grade teacher is on the news. Uh, she was George Floyd's second grade teacher. And so I tell people that story because it ceases to be a newspaper article or something that they've read. It ceases to be a, a talking point that they've seen on a news segment. No, we were in the same place at the same time. The people that were freshmen when he was a senior, they were seniors when I was a freshman in high school. And so he could have easily been me. And it changes the dynamic. It changes the conversation. It ceases mm-hmm. to be an intellectual discussion at the That's moment. Right. And yeah. it becomes a lived experience. Yes. And so I think when you're having these conversations with people and you can move it from the rhetorical and make it be something that's real and tangible and practical, can be lived, then again, that kind of what we were talking about before, that's a litmus test of someone that you want to engage with and give your time and your energy to. If in the midst of humanizing these people, that still, for lack of a better term, does not work or people are still not open to it, then... I think, uh, as Kenny Rogers said, no one to hold them, no one to fold them, no one to walk away, (laughs) no one to run. I want another person on the podcast. (laughs) I vote Sean off the island. I have to be ignorant, otherwise it's not me. Fair enough. (laughs) Continue. I think that was, I think he was done. And pivot. (laughs) That was my conclusion. I know I got that. Uncle Kenny. Well, and and the last thing I would say to that, Uncle Kenny, (laughs) um, is that, yeah, the last thing I would say to that is we need to remember that we, remember what that woman said in Ferguson years and years ago, I ain't always been saved and I ain't always been woke. That's right. And I think for us to remember where we started and to realize, like, I didn't pop out the womb some, like, image of black girl magic Mm -hmm. or any kind of knowledge of anything. And so I just realized that, like, 
we all came from somewhere, and if we can remember where we came from and That's what right. was helpful for us in changing our minds or our theology or our worldviews, it usually helps us to have a little bit better of a sense of how to talk to other people about these things. Yeah. I also heard a principle that I found really helpful. I used to work with Pastor Michael McBride, and he said, I'm, I'm very confrontational and have a very firm critique of systems and institutions, but I am gentle with individuals. Mm-hmm. And I, I've found that wisdom wow. to be very... That's good helpful. That's really good. So we're going to pivot to talking about some questions related to Bible and resources, so how we learn, really. Um, And I get two questions really often, and we're going to talk about both of them, but I want y'all to know I actually don't feel super gentle about my responses to these because I'm a little frustrated by, I think, some of the Mm. subtext of these questions, and I think we need to do some of our own work around these. Okay, all right. Buckle up, kids. So the first question that we have, um, and this is related to some of my critiques of the English Standard Version, the ESV Bible, is are there translations of the Bible out there that are less harmful to folks that you could recommend? I feel like I can't trust my ESV translation anymore. I understand not wanting to read things that are problematic and terrible. Mm. But no version of the Bible is going to make the way you read the Bible less problematic. It's not the text itself that is necessarily the issue, though I think we could argue that at some points yeah. too. It's the lenses and the interpretations and the hermeneutics or ways of understanding the scriptures mm-hmm. that are the problem. And so I think sometimes this question feels to me a little bit like, what's the magic bullet for the Bible to not be problematic anymore? And I don't have a lot of answer for that because... We're asking the Bible to do a lot of things it's not trying to do all the time, and no translation is going to change that. Specifically, I don't use the ESV because Wayne Grudem, who is like one of the most benevolent patriarchal humans of our day, was on the editing board for it, and I'm not interested in having his interpretive lens put on how I baseline read the scriptures, so I'm not going to do that. But I'm curious what y'all think about these scriptures. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all, if you, that's how Brandy comes cold. Follow that. Look. (laughs) That's just what I think. Opinions, other, Yeah, what about (laughs) y'all? So I probably took in something about one. I don't use a translation that does not have gender inclusive language. And I was doing that back when it was just the NIV 84. We didn't have all these other ones. I just never felt comfortable being in a room. Um, Men, women, and just only he pronouns I never felt comfortable with that so um, it needs to be it needs to be readable so this was at a very basic level um, I think in terms of translations what's helped I agree with Brandy 1000% it's the hermeneutic it's not the text in and of itself um, people that come to mind uh, one of the ones that shaped mine tremendously was just Howard Thurman and he talks about obviously Jesus being poor person of color and living under Roman oppression and again if we don't have that hermeneutic when we approach the text I think the authors that we read if they don't have a similar hermeneutic when they approach the text and we're studying from them, then it's just going to be toxic and unhelpful. So I think um, what I hear you saying really, or what I hear in those questions really is a question of something about going deeper in their faith and going deeper in their understanding of who Jesus is and how he emerges in the scriptures. It's not the scriptures in and of themselves. It's the tools that we're using to unpack them. So I think right now I said when I was a, a student in seminary that I was no longer going to read books by white men that had not done their hard work. And as a consequence, uh, I have not picked up a book written by a white man. No, no, I was like, then you ain't going to read no books by white men. So, um, but in the midst of that, the people who were shaping my thinking really are uh, women of color, uh, queer theologians of color, uh, and especially our native or indigenous brothers and sisters, like there are a whole 
other voices that I think seminaries and the academy have just avoided for so long. And if we would just pivot ever so slightly, it's not necessarily muzzling one set of voices, just saying, yeah, I've kind of what, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten his name. Oh, well, the brother that did Us and all the new scary movies, Jordan, Jordan Peele. Peele. Jordan Peele said, I'm not going to have a white lead in my movies. I've seen that movie before. And so that's kind of how I feel when I approach these theological discussions. It's like, I know what that voice and what that audience is going to say. Who else on the earth follows Jesus that has written something down? I want to be able to learn from them. And that's been life-giving and transformative for me. I would say that the other thing I often hear that I feel like is connected to these types of questions is feeling trapped by interpretations that you've heard and hoping there's some other translation of the Bible that might help you get away from them. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I just tell people, like, take a break yeah, from the that's Bible. Right. That's right. But I think there's a lot of anxiety, right? Because yes. there's a lot of slippery slope. And what if I stop reading it? Yeah. I'll never come back to it. Um, and I think it's more worth interrogating those anxieties. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it's okay to just get a little bit of distance. There's tons of ways to connect with Jesus and Creator. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we've had such rigid interpretations, we can't come in to hearing the stories for what they are. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think take a break. Then read only women of color you're like i'm not trying to muzzle some people i am that in the entire straight white male theological tradition has done massive violence yeah. Yeah. to the earth to women to the queer folks so i feel like we do need to muzzle those voices and radically shift our focus over to voices whose lived experience is from the margins yeah. And once you start to see how they talk about the Bible and how they interpret these stories that you were told there was only one interpretation of, mm -hmm. to me that's more important than Absolutely. finding a translation that does this with that article or this article. The one thing I will say, though, because you did ask, multiple people did ask questions about translations, is that translations function on a spectrum from idea-based to word-to-word -word translations hey. from the Greek and Hebrew. So mm -hmm. there are things like the NRSV that's going to be closer to word-for-word -word, or yep. something like the message that's entirely ideas. Yeah. And that sometimes we just need to understand the basic idea of something. So I might turn to the message if I'm just like, what the heck is going on yeah. here? Mm -hmm. But there are times where the words themselves matter. The text is trying to say something specific by the pronouns that are being mm -hmm. used or the mm -hmm. context. A lot of that, though, we're not noticing in our day-to-day -day Bible reading. That's right, that's right. Um, and so I think it's fine to have multiple translations. So for me right now, I use the NRSV because it's used mostly in the academy, and I'm trapped in that world forever. And, mm -hmm. yep. Yep. <laughs> um, and I use the First Nations version. Yeah. Um, also those me. Two. And then the Common English Bible is my kind of third one that I've been yes. using because it's very readable and very easy. And so most people in most churches that you're going to see are going to have the NIV or the new NIV or the, yeah, or the ESV. It's fine. I just can't read translations where I know the background of them. Like yes. with the NRSV, I'm sure there's problematic stuff. I don't know it. And no one seems to put it out there in the world. But Wayne Grudem's on the ESV, so I'm staying away from it. <laughs> You're saying right. you don't like his translation. <laughs> You're going to find out how much I dislike Ring Wayne Grudem in the next season on Patriarchy. Okay, well, <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Name drop a person. All right. <laughs> so then the next question, again, I am not trying to be mean. But I get questions like every, literally every day, multiple times a day, asking me for a book list. Ooh, <laughs> me too. Dumb, dumb, dumb. Me All too. Right, yeah. so, so, tell me why you laugh. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I do get asked for book lists all the time. 
and I am resistant to giving them to people. Now, it's funny. It's because if you hang out with me at all in any space, I'll talk all the time about books I'm reading. Absolutely. We are currently literally sitting in front of my bookshelf, which has hundreds yes. of books by people of color. I think why I'm resistant is because it, like, smells bad to me. It's that I can't, it always feels like the belief that if you read something, it's going to make you act right and do right. Yeah. It smells like white people, not like book learning. Like book mm. learning isn't going to save you. Book yeah. knowledge is not wisdom. Yeah. And so there's such a deep trust in that. But, you know, as if the people who created our founding documents or people with PhDs and masters can't say <laughs> incredibly problematic things. Well, and yes. so it's this... La and uh, people read books and they don't necessarily do anything with yeah. them. Yes. So all of that makes me feel like resistant to that as such a go-to solution. Yes. Instead of trying to think about, you probably already know enough. Yes. Think more about what to do with what you know. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's a similar <laughs> thing of like a never-ending deconstructing versus are you moving forward in what you have learned so yeah. far? Yeah. Uh, that That's why. I don't know. why. What about you, Brandy? I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is that, like you said, I, I just don't believe that more knowledge makes us better people. Um, and I think it often invalidates the lived embodied experiences of people who came before us. Because I think about like Granny from the Block, who's never read Carl Ellis or Ta-Nehisi Coates. You know, mm -hmm. no one has not read those things, but have an embodied sense of God and injustice in the world that cannot be summed up. And I think that sometimes when we ask for books and we pivot away from embodied experiences, I think Kat Armas' book actually does a really good job in Abuelita Faith talking about this, but that we lose a whole, like a whole world of theological realities mm -hmm. that might already be living in us or in our family members or in our friends or in our aunties or in our neighbors. And so many of us have only been taught that knowledge comes from needs to come from a specific type of authority. That's that it right. needs to come from someone who's published or someone who's credentialed. Mm -hmm. And I think that the scriptures are completely unfamiliar with that kind of engagement with with spirituality, with yeah. the Bible. And so I think, firstly, mm -hmm. that kind of bothers me. Um, because I think that we don't trust our own bodies to know things. We don't trust other people's bodies or experiences. And we assume that, like, somehow books are going to help us just yeah the, the books are going to finish the work that we have to do for ourselves yeah and i and i don't i don't appreciate i don't appreciate that posture. <laughs> <laughs> and i think as well it, there's um there can be at times a very consuming approach mm -hmm. one thing that has been helpful to me as i've spent more time around edith and randy woodley ayla hay uh indigenous center for earth justice is Sometimes it's about the same story being told again and again. I mean, there's certain traditions where at certain times of year, you're going to tell the same story at that time of year again and again. So it's not about like, oh, I heard that story. No. Right? It's about how are you hearing it now, where you are now. One, that might draw your attention to something else, or you might have more wisdom than you had before. So I think there's also this sense of like, if I consume more mm -hmm. knowledge of a certain type. Yeah. But to me, there... There isn't that internalized transformation yes. that is being committed to. Yeah, and I, I think we all know, like, just the idol of intellectualism that permeates through our Western society. We're just taught, like, read this book, it'll solve your problems. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously there are a few people that, who I know and trust and love. And so when they tell me, oh, this new book is out, like, when Kat's book came out, without question, buying it, love her, trust her, and 
just excited to be able to see and kind of hear what she's doing. But I think when all these lists come out, there's always an assumption like, oh, if you give me a list of books to read, I can read these and then all of my problems will be solved. And there's this verse from scripture that Paul, when he warns Timothy, he just says people will always be learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. And he says, stay away from them. And that's kind of what I feel. It's like, I don't know, there are no more books to read in some cases. You've already heard everything that you need to. Now you actually have to go out and do it. And so that's one of the things that troubles me. I don't do book lists anymore. I don't give folks that. People come over to my house when I go to people's houses. I want to know what they're reading, but I'm not, I don't publish a book list for those things because I think, no, you, you know what you need to do. You just have to actually go out and do the work. And eventually, I'm not going to be an ass about it, and I will give up like some book recommendations, but I think the reality is that oftentimes Christians or people trying to follow Jesus only seek to learn from other Christian people, yeah. mm. when what most Christians lack is a, is a knowledge of history. Yeah. And so a lot of the books that I recommend seem very unspiritual, because I'm like, read A Different Mirror. Mm. Like, read... The warmth of other sense. Yes. Like, read read history and things that will help us to know, to interpret the scriptures through the world that we actually live in and let those be in conversation with each other. And I think that many times when I recommend those history books to people, people don't read them because they seem like disconnected or boring somehow. And that tells me that people don't actually want to do the work to live fully in the world that we're in, but would rather have a spiritual solution slapped on. The one caveat I will give, though, is that many people when I'm talking specifically to folks of color or queer folks or folks of marginalized identities, sometimes we just want books because we don't know where to start yes. with voices that mm-hmm. are like ours. Mm-hmm. I'll give that book resource list yes. any Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Here's black theology. Here's queer theology. Yes. Here are things that you may not know. But usually if you just Google them, you'll find the same things I would recommend. That's right. So yeah. I just think that that's... Yeah. <laughs> I can't give a magical book that's going to fix things. And I think sometimes I feel the pressure to be like, now here's the book that will save everyone. And I'm like, that's not, that's not sustainable in any way. So I, I don't want to totally dishonor the question that I get every day, but I do want to name that it, it smells of disembodiment yes. to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, what bugs me. So, but is there one book you would recommend? <laughs> like if everyone was going to read like one, like one book, what would that book be? Shalom in the Community of Creation by Randy Woodley. That was the same for me. Uh, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Yes. It's changed my life. Yep. Mm-hmm. And because I feel like if we do not name a woman of color theologian. <laughs> Mercy Jesus. Well, we recommend, we, yeah. we reference yeah. Kat Armas' book, Abuelita Faith, multiple yes. times. Dolores Absolutely. Williams' Sisters in the Wilderness. Yes. Absolutely. It's huge. Absolutely. Okay. Because what will happen is we'll be like, we don't want to give you all book recommendations. And we'll and be like, like but here's a billion books that we love. Yeah, and so I was like, I know, that's what I'm holding myself back from right now because there's a lot, but I feel like that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that someday that period. list will be coming in a specific way, but that's why whenever you message me for it, I don't get it. Alright, so now I want to pivot to a couple of questions just around healing, because so much of deconstruction and decolonizing everything, I don't even call it, there's a reason I call this reclaiming theology, mm-hmm. because deconstruction doesn't feel, again, it's a never-ending process that yeah. doesn't feel like it goes anywhere, for me at least, but as we start to figure out that there are other ways of doing our spirituality, a lot of us realize how much trauma we have and how many things that we need to heal from and how many things are coming up for us. And so again, I just want to name, we ought to be gentle with ourselves and all of these. So with these couple of questions around uh, healing or engaging differently, I just want us to, yeah, have Mm -hmm. that, have that lens. And so the question here is, I can see the ways that white supremacy has impacted me as a person of color, but feel overwhelmed by all of the unlearning. Mm -hmm. How have you all approached the pace of your deconstructing? Was it gradual or all at once? How do you hold on to Jesus in the midst of unlearning? 
It was very gradual. Uh, first person that I met that I realized really had done a masterful job as a woman of color to deconstruct her faith. Uh, we were co-workers at an organization we used to be at and she disappeared. She left my first year and I didn't see her uh, really for probably like the better part, like five or six years. And she came back, she was just changed, refreshed. And I was like, hey, you know, what happened? Like you've got these amazing ideas, you've written this book. Um, how did you get there? And she said, oh no, you need to go into your own wilderness. It's gonna take you about five to 10 years. You're going to be very confused. And then one day things will just start to make sense. Uh, and so I, it's very, very, very gradual. And I think one of the things that kept me sane was realizing that I wasn't the only person that was going through this, not just on the earth at this time, but people in previous generations had gone through that as well. And so how did I look for them, whether they were living or whether those things were written down from authors of color. And so I made a journey and a quest to really try to look for those voices and to elevate them. The only thing that I'd say too, and Brandy and Erna both know this, I come from a very dysfunctional family. And so self-care is a foreign concept. And so in the midst of me trying to figure out what does it mean to um, deconstruct and decolonize my faith, I had to prioritize my self-care at a very rigorous level. Um, and so it's gonna sound really basic, but I tell everybody I focus on eight hours of sleep, three meals a day and eight glasses of water. And there was something about prioritizing my own health in the midst of trying to deconstruct and decolonize my theology. That those two things together, they have taken time, but it has been a life-giving, transformative process. So I would say that. I just want to jump off of that because what I love about it is if we only talk about deconstructing, we're only talking about loss. Yep. Yes. But what you named and what I am about as I'm working with women of color is like, you get to take care of yourself. That's right. You That's get right. to listen to your body yes. instead of having this violent yes. silencing yeah. relationship yes. with it. You get to reconnect with your ancestors, yes. with your cultural traditions. Yes. You get to read authors who validate your lived experience. Yes. Like to me, it's important to realize like we're moving deeper into beautiful ways to yes. love God, yes. love neighbor, yes. be loved by mm -hmm. God and to love ourselves. So Again, to me, it's about what are we moving towards? That's right. That's what right. is the beautiful and liberated life we are moving towards? And we get stuff out of the way so that we yes. can embrace that. I yep. think that it's to me, it's as if it's about, and again, there's lots of critique of moving towards the promised land and the mm -hmm. removal of entire peoples who are living there. Mm -hmm. But if we think of it as a framework for liberation, mm -hmm. It's about moving towards the land of milk and honey. It's not about having left Egypt and then journaling about Egypt every day and being yeah. like, Pharaoh this and Pharaoh that. And let's talk about Egypt and like, yeah. oh, y'all, like I'm an ex-Egyptian person. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. no, yeah. it's about moving towards the land of milk and honey. It's about moving towards this, going through this transformation yes. that God's trying to take you through so that you can stop being enslaved yeah. and become a people and again, collectively, right? People really approach it too as if my individual deconstruction journey, yeah. we as a collective people need to move towards liberation. Having this new life with God about manna every day, about the cloud covering the sun, about the fire at night. So it's about new, beautiful ways to know yeah. and be known by God. And who doesn't want to move towards that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. If it's just about <laughs> loss, then you have to pace yourself. Yeah. But if it's about getting stuff that's blocking you from moving towards life out of the way, I would just think how you move towards the land of milk and honey. Yeah. And yes. let me, Brent, uh, Erna, rather, I'm sorry, you were, you said something and it popped in my mind. I'm not going to read all of these because this is not an Alcoholics Anonymous podcast, but Alcoholics Anonymous, they have these promises at the end of um, the big book in AA. 
And I just want to read a couple of them because I think it's intuitive of this journey that we're talking about. Like one of them says, we will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. Uh, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense in which the things that are gray and cloudy and murky and don't make sense now, we, we follow the process of whatever it is, whatever the journey is on. In time, the things that are baffling right now, they'll make sense. You're not supposed to have all the answers at the very beginning stages of your journey and trying to figure out who you are and what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Creator? You're not supposed to know now, but on that journey, like Arna was saying, of not just leaving some things, but turning towards something, gradually and incrementally, you'll begin to discover more of who Jesus is and, in addition, more of who you are and the things you want and how you want to operate and move in the world and love people. Yeah. The only thing I will add is that I think there are two unhelpful forces on multiple sides working against what you're talking about mm -hmm. and one is christian notions of conversion mm -hmm. that you were one thing and now you are this completely different other thing yes. right away and Thanks. that that somehow isn't like that that somehow like you're just you're just perfectly different you know yeah. the scales fall, fall off of paul's eyes and then he's <laughs> no longer murdering christians and is like the very best evangelical there ever was you know like there's that and then there's also just that the progressive internet is mean yeah like, the progressive pe progressive internet culture is mean. Yeah. And it assumes that if you have not fully arrived at something right now, that you don't deserve to have space to ask your questions and to be present, and that if you mess up, you're done for. Yeah. And I think that if we have on one side conversion narratives that tell us we need to be perfect right away, and progressive narratives that say we need to be perfect right away, and there's no space for gentleness, then how are we going to be gentle with ourselves? Look. Yeah. Yes! Mm. Look. Mm. Mm. It's the whole going from one kind of fundamentalism to another kind of fundamentalism. Stay right there. It's rigid. It's mean. <laughs> it There's no room for humanity yeah. and compassion. It's just one side is LGBTQ affirming and believes in women and leadership. And one side... You know, but we've stayed inside that same box. Mm -hmm. So, right, we're trying to move, like you're saying, to a place where there's... What are we even doing if we can't be <laughs> compassionate to humans and believe people can change? Yes. What are we even doing? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> and so yeah. I just want to name that tension yeah. because I think it's yes. very, very frustrating yes. yeah. to be on a journey and trying to learn and trying to do the right things and to feel like you're never doing enough. Mm -hmm. Or that unless you become... So for me, I think one of the things that I've seen and heard from a lot of people I talk to is that people feel like they have to be performatively Christian or performatively progressive and never mm -hmm. authentically themselves. And mm -hmm. so I think that we need to find trusted people in our journeys of deconstruction or journeys of reclaiming our theology where we can just be like... Yo, I know I think a messed up thing and yeah. it's coming out of me. Like for me right now, I'm unlearning a lot of my ableism. Mm -hmm. And I talk to a friend pretty often like, yo, I did not realize how deep this was in me. And I said this mm -hmm. thing yes. or like, I, you know, use these words that I don't want to use mm -hmm. that are super dehumanizing to yeah. disabled folks. And I'm just owning and learning that in spaces that are safe with people that I know can hold me in the journey that I'm on. And mm -hmm. so I hope that other folks can have that because the journey is not immediate. It is gradual. And while we might have what, you know, I'm going to use a real Christian phrase, like a catalytic moment mm -hmm. where something happens and we change our minds on something, it doesn't mean that our whole world That's changes right. right away. And so I just want to give space for that reality. Yes. Uh, the next question here is about therapy. Um, so they say, hey, Brandy, really enjoyed the podcast. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that was the whole message, and you just wanted That's to read it. that. All right. And now we feel healed and therapy. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> they said, I'm curious if you have found counselors online or in person that specifically deal with religious trauma. I would appreciate any ideas you have. Thanks for doing what you do. Yes, there's a group of uh, counselors of color in Austin that I think they serve Austin. They may even serve like people around the country as well. But I know there are a number of them that deal with church trauma and religious wounds. So it's increasingly becoming think uh, a growing field as the population of people who have church and trauma wounds is growing exponentially around the country and around the world yeah i would name that you don't need to have a christian counselor to deal with religious trauma exactly Facts. what i was going to say in fact Facts. it might be like, better not to have a christian Facts. therapist Facts. because Facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the person who inflicted harm on you is probably not the one yeah. to help you heal from it yeah. and so i think that for many of us like right my my counselor like my therapist is a christian she's great but i kind of vetted yeah. how she would approach like my transition out of inner varsity or things mm-hmm. like that so that i would know that i was going to be re-traumatized yeah. by trying to talk about religious trauma with someone mm-hmm. who would be unhelpful and so i would say one thing to avoid is people who call themselves biblical counselors oh yes. no Mm-mm. because that's run. not run that's Mm-mm. not I don't know if this is actually true, but it's not real therapy. Like it's, it is a way of, it it is a non-scientific approach to using the Bible to work through things that are happening in your emotional world. And it functions in my experience, at least in really conservative evangelical spaces, much more like, indoctrination than it does like therapy is that I'm I'm, I don't want to talk shit. No, no, that's one thousand percent right. Yes, I know people who have didn't know that and great violence was done to them, you know, because those folks are really functioning to maintain white supremacy and patriarchy. More important than having a Christian counselor, because I think many Christian therapists, they actually haven't interrogated their Christianity. And so the Christianity you're going to get from them will actually probably trigger you. Mm -hmm. More important, I would say, is to have a trauma-informed therapist, as well as a therapist who understands how systems of white supremacy and patriarchy will Im- are impacting you and your mm-hmm. mental well-being. Mm-hmm. I think having a therapist who under has those frameworks is going to do more good for you. I also think most people of color I know want a people of color therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that right, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, because also therapy is a very white, very individualistic um, profession Mm -hmm. and so you want a person of color who has also done some work to decolonize those frameworks Mm -hmm. so that's what i would say is more important than a christian therapist absolutely vet them vet them vet them that's just i think we're all saying that in the same i think most people go to therapy and by the time you get there there's just you've got so much that you want to be able to say and before you pour out your heart vet them ask them some very solid questions their thinking their theology how they think about if they're christian their theology if they're not how they just approach uh, the counseling process. Ask them some serious questions and what you're hoping to get out of it. And that way they let you know if you're opening yourself up to someone who's healthy or if this is a person who has a toxic thinking that's just going to do more damage to you. Yes. And it's okay. I think some of us, when we start going to therapy for the first time, feel bad not liking a therapist that we're going to see. You are paying them to listen to you Look, and to help my you. my God. So if you're having a hard time finding a therapist because you don't feel like you want to open up, or, and I'm like, that's okay. You don't have to love the first therapist that you try. Mm-hmm. I sure didn't. Miss mm-hmm. Gale didn't do anything good for me. Well, <laughs> why are you naming that person? We'll be right back. Go to commercial. Go to commercial. We'll be right back. You think she's listening to me? I do not 100%. I just was, that was unexpected. 100% that woman is not listening to this podcast because she is... You know you didn't do a good job with that. Oh, no, she doubled down. All right, well. I would also say, I think therapy is helpful. I think, like, the work I do is with women 
of color who are coming out of these spaces. Yeah. And I do it from a coaching framework, which I would say uh, is more directive than therapy. Mm-hmm. So you also want to know there's more directive and less directive types of therapists. Yes. And then there's different types of coaching by women of color that address some of this. So I think it also depends on, I think people who come to me, they want someone really directive. I think other folks are looking for someone more like gentle guidance through a journey. So I think, again, also knowing what kind of help you want is important too. And that'll shape the style, right, of the person you look for. That's really Mm -hmm. good. That's really good. All right, so now we're going to pivot to some questions on church and Christian community, which is a a series of questions I get pretty often in general, but some of these really do feel like they encapsulate a lot of what other folks are experiencing. So the first question is, I would appreciate some advice on what to look for in a church and how to go about searching. I'm having trouble regaining vision of what church can be and honestly enjoying my time away from it. Fair. But also wondering if finding a healthy one could be healing. Thanks. A couple things. One, I think it's helpful if you have come from a more like white evangelical framework. I think there's this idea that church has to be the majority of your community. So it's not just someplace you go on Sunday. It also has to be your small group and those people have to be your friends and they also have to be your whole world. So I would say that as you're looking for a new church to feel free to be like, it can just be one of many communities you're a part of and one of a web of relationships you have that nourish you spiritually. I feel like that can bring down what we need or expect church to do. I also think that framework leads to a lot of toxicity, so it's okay to leave it behind. For me, I often look at leadership, who is in leadership, founders. I think churches, I mean, it's the same stuff I was going to say about who you read, like churches that were started by white guys or men of color because let's be honest here men of color pastors are not doing their work and they often cause women of color so much harm so look for churches that have women of color leaders queer women of color pastors i can name like four churches off the top of my head that are led by queer black women but then obviously too you can look for are you a liturgy person or a more like relaxed environment person or right and so you can sort of sort out church can't give you everything so what's one or two things that are important to you but i do feel like leadership matters Mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of examples of this but i really think that churches should shift to more of a team model than a single personality top down like you just replace who's at the top of the hierarchy so i think like how leadership is set up how transparent they are about certain theological values and then their vibe yeah absolutely that's huge yeah i think so i would add um i love a good crisis I love a good crisis. Uh, my favorite quote from Dr. King is the ultimate measure of a person is not what they say in moments of comfort and convenience, but challenge and controversy. And uh, unless you've been living under a rock, there have been one or two crises that have happened in the United <laughs> yeah. States of America in the last decade. Uh, and I think any church or leadership team that's doing the work, not for bragging rights, but they're going to have some type of story about that on their website, the ethos of that, I think is going to be evident some way, shape, or form in the community. If you go there and there is nothing reflective about what's happening in our society you don't see people of color in positions of leadership you don't see stances on particular issues that have happened in the u.s i think that typically is a clear sign that this is a church that yeah does not live in the 21st century or is not operating in a way in which it's going to be healthy for my own theology so yeah. i think the crisis is huge the only thing that i'd say to uh it's it's probably a big goal is uh, don't be afraid to create it i think the people who i find that are asking those types of questions of what does that church look like uh, they're not alone, and they are in groups and communities, and they've got friends that 
They have no idea what to be able to do. Uh, when Philando Castile and Alton Sterling were killed in 2016, uh, my good friend Shedrick, he was uh, a worship pastor at three different churches, and I was at one. And that means between the two of us, we heard four different sermons in response to that. Uh, one guy was white, and the other three were black, and we hated all of them. We hated all of those responses. And so as a consequence, we said, let's just start it ourselves. And so we thought it was going to be like an afternoon, like, oh, we'll just get together like after church and figure things out. We asked some people to pray for us, and the response, we had 20 people say, like, I don't want to just pray, I want to come. I don't like the places that I'm at right now. And so we accidentally planted something. Um, and so I say that to be able to say, open yourself up to the possibility that if you cannot find it, there could be an invitation to create something. And there are different models that are out there, precisely like Ernie and Brandy are talking about. They're team-led, not personality-led. You can figure out how you want to do it. You can sing some Sundays, or you can study scripture together, or you can say, we don't want to do anything. Let's just go serve somewhere. You have the opportunities, I think, to reimagine the type of community that you need. And so I'd say just include that in the, in the lexicon of ideas that you have um, yeah. for what you may want to do. Yeah, and I mean, I've recently been in this process because I just moved cities a couple years ago and was looking for church. And one of the things I did is I made a list of non-negotiables, yes. um, both in the positive and in the negative. Mm -hmm. So I said, I'm not going to go to a church that's not affirming or actively moving toward being affirming of LGBTQ folks. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go to a church that has a white man as a lead pastor unless that person has people of color who are vetted on their team who yes. are... And by vetted, I mean they actually like that person. Um, I asked, I wanted a church that had a good reputation in the community. Yeah. So when I asked people who weren't Christian, who were Christian, yeah. who knew about the church, what they thought about it, that it had a good reputation. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things was just like asking, do I actually like being here? Come on yeah. now. Do I like being yeah. here? Does my body feel yeah. like it can exhale in yeah. this space? Yeah. And I'm going to use a phrase that like I... I think has been weaponized, but that is true, which is like that there is no perfect church. But it doesn't mean there aren't deeply less traumatizing Come on churches. now. Because right, right, I think that's that right, many of us, right. when we find churches, they'll be like, church shopping's bad, don't hop around, plug in and get in. I'm like, that's no. a Ponzi scheme to get people no. to give to your church. That's right. Like, and there are places that are not perfect and know they're not, but who are actively working to be better. Yeah. And, it, and what is faith in Jesus if not hearing what Jesus says and then trying to be a little bit better. Yeah. Like, and so I find church, I, I found a church doing that, asking what are my non-negotiables? So it could be affirming of women in ministry, which I didn't realize how many non, how many churches were not doing that. that. Like, yes, it's yeah, so sad. Yeah, that's appalling. Yeah. And then the other thing I would say is that it is okay to do church virtually. Yeah. Um, the yeah. pandemic has revealed to us that Virtual doesn't mean not real. That's right. And I think that for many of us, we feel like we have to go to a church in our local community. And I know that some of y'all can't do that. Like that you're in churches or spaces that are highly isolated or in like deep red states or in places where you can't go to church safely. And there are places online who are hosting services that can give you kind of that church feel, even if it's not the same. And you can find other people to connect with, like Sean's saying in small groups or in communities to create what you want communally, but to let the structure of church exist online for you, that's totally okay. And I, I just, I'd say too, like, trust your instincts as well. Like, I was a part of a very unhealthy church. Like, it, it became very unhealthy very quickly. And after I left staff at that church, I was thinking about staying because I enjoyed it as a member, but it became so healthy, I had to be able to, to step down. And one thing that my therapist told me uh, years ago was, he said, you have x-ray vision. He said, you can't stay. He said, anytime someone gets up on stage, you can look in their face and tell if they're tired or not. If the pastor says like these veiled kind of like, you know, tangential comments in the sermon, you know that 
it's a person that he's talking about in that sermon. You can't say you have x-ray vision. And so one of the things that I have taken away from that is I can walk into not all, but a number of contexts, especially church contexts, and you can just sense the environment. So I think even in the midst of like you're searching for it, even if you can't articulate as masterfully as Brandy just did, trust your instincts. Like if you've got those church wounds and it's taken some time for you to step back into those spaces, you'll know when it's a good fit and when it feels right and when it feels healthy. And if there's something in you that says, I can't name it, I don't know what it is, but something doesn't feel right, trust that and keep yeah. moving. You don't have to park there and like, well, we can just give it a chance. No, they discomfort in you as a sign yeah. that this isn't a place that probably is life-giving for you, even if you don't know what it is. Yep. And it's okay that you're enjoying your time away from church. Yes. I think it's really okay to ask the question, why? Yeah. That's like, right. why are you yes. enjoying your time away from yes. it? And to, and to trust that, to mm-hmm. trust, trust the why and... Yes, I believe that some churches can be healthy and healing, but if your experience has not been that, then assuming that a church is going to do something that's maybe never done for you may not be the best place to start while looking for a church community. So our next question about church um, comes yeah, from another listener, and they said, I'm a God-curious person who started listening to your podcast because my boyfriend is Christian, and this felt like a way for me to start to learn more about Christianity. This is a question that I see my boyfriend grappling with that I hope that you can answer. Over the last few years, I've been becoming more wary of church as I've become more aware of the power dynamics and thoughtlessness that can exist in some churches. As a result, I don't really enjoy going anymore. However, I miss having community that loves God and engages with God in the same ways I do, especially now that I've moved to a new state. What are ways I can re-engage with a Christian community if I'm also wary of church? So it's a related question, but it feels a little bit more about that kind of, how do you create the thing? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, let's, mm-hmm. let's chat about that just briefly. One, I think this is such a sweet question. Yes. <laughs> so amazing. I was like, what an amazing partner. Yes. It's like wanting to learn and care this yes. much about their partner. So, um, but that's not an answer. <laughs> I will say, so, you know, my work is with Liberated Together and I do a lot of cohorts. And to me, what I'm trying to do there is give people a taste of what, what I think could be. Mm-hmm. I think part of what happens is we, if you come from certain spaces, uh, this doesn't count. That doesn't count. Yeah. It only counts as church when it's on Sundays between 11 and 1230. Mm-hmm. And part of what I want to do is give people a chance to go, there is a place, spaces, where you can bring your full self. Mm-hmm. We can have a lot of trust. It's fully affirming. We're going to talk about all the things. And we still love Jesus. And it's happening over Zoom for an hour and a half on a Thursday night. Because I think just to go, it's. I don't think it's as far off as we think. That's yes. right. Right. So I, when we've been hurt and we've been harmed, it just feels like all again, the, we're focused on the harm. But I actually think when we there's a lot of people out there that are on this journey who yes. want this space. Yeah, so I think all we need is just a just pull a few folks and then start being that. And it's yeah. kind of shocking to me yeah. how quickly. Yes. Now, I will be honest, all the spaces I create. I've taken all the men out and I've taken all the white people out mm-hmm. and helps us jump off on some healing. So I also feel like yeah. it's okay to create that a space that takes out certain folks for a little while because there's something so deeply and profoundly healing about being centered and seen in a certain yes. community. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I 1,000% again agree. Like, what do you need? I think just start there. I think that's perfectly fine. Um, what do you need? And then... I don't know. I'm just in the season where I'm like, create the space. If you can't find it, create it. If you want to have a group of people around and you open up a translation or multiple translations, you don't know that you like them or not. But there's a passage you want to discuss. 
that's fine. Like, what is it that you, the things that you miss about being in a type of church community and context? Mm-hmm. It's not that building some of those specific people, but maybe some of the relationships or some of the spiritual practices. How do you create that? But you create it in a way in which it's going to be healthy for you. Yeah. And then you tell your friends, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And precisely what Erna just said, you would be surprised. There are people who are starving and thirsting for those types of environments. And you can have shared leadership and all of those things. It doesn't need to be something that's burdensome where you're like, it's something that I have to manage and lead. It's a different way, I think to do spirituality to do faith and so i would say that like what do you need and then just invite people to create and dream with you and see what happens i think also people don't want to do that because you feel like once you start it it has to go on forever yes and it's and that sounds terrible yeah Yeah. so that's also why i feel like do something for eight weeks yeah and then just be done there's such a weird it's because churches never end in a healthy way that you feel like oh once you start something and then you dread it and it Mm -hmm. sucks but now you feel like we started it so we we have have to do it forever I also feel like experimenting in different ways of connection for short periods of time yeah, is sure. really fun. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, there's some unconventional spaces that I've been a part of that have been really helpful and really good. So there's a Thursday night conversation on Twitter that I did for years when I was isolated in a really white city called Slate Speak. And on Slate Speak, they used to ask questions and you talk over Twitter with people. And I just felt like, oh, it was a place where I got to converse and to feel seen and to be around other people of faith or people exploring faith, having a conversation about spirituality in some way that felt meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a Bible study, which we kind of stopped doing, but mm-hmm. never talked about stuff. I know. Doing, which <laughs> I just realized just something. now. But, but we enjoyed it. Yeah, right, but, yeah, but all we did was we got together over Zoom every other week or so. We read a chapter out of the First Nations version of the Bible out loud. Yes. And then we asked the question, where do we feel this in our body? Yeah. Or where we experience this in our body? And we just talked about it. And so I think that there are unconventional ways. Like, if prayer is your thing, find one or two people to pray with. If I was going to say watching, like, a movie, but I was like, Christian movies are bad, so maybe just scratch that one. But, like, asking, yeah, what do I like? What's fun for me? How do I want to re-engage? And if it's just, like, I could I could imagine this being, like, I just want to be around people who believe similar yeah. things that I do. And, like, be innocent. And that's totally that's real. Great. And I think the internet is our best friend for that kind of mm-hmm. thing. There's so many conversational spaces online to be doing that That's that I've done myself and have been really good. Yeah. And I think there's great places that are creating cohorts. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, right. But I, I was thinking about, like, um, there's tons of different types of affinity groups. I mean, you work for Be The Bridge, yeah. PAC, Progressive Asian Americans, like creating these spaces where people journey together for a year and learn together. I think Instagram's amazing. There's so many women of color on there doing innovative community building. I distinguish between people who are doing sort of like informational education on Instagram, people who are doing um, aggressive call out yeah. for a living <laughs> on Instagram, and people who are trying to create community on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about the third one. Yeah. That's good. That was good. In case it wasn't clear. That's really helpful. That's good. Well, then our last question around church, uh, we, I think, will have really different responses or feelings or thoughts about this one, so I'm curious how this will go, but why do you slash most of your speakers stay in Christian churches, which seem impossibly connected to and reinforcing white supremacy? I'd be curious what that looks like practically to reimagine possibilities for my family. I will say on the front end, I actually think there's a lot of assumption in there about what people that are on reclaiming my theology you're doing right now i think that's probably because i myself am pretty churchy right now that i work for a church i love my church i talk well about my church and i've been in church very consistently for the last 10 years even throughout all of the things and so i think i'd be careful not to put assumptions about what i do onto the people that i'm with because i think we have really different experiences of the church right now yeah yeah (laughs) true story 
I mean, I was working at a church until through May 2020, and then I really haven't gone to church since I stopped working at one. I feel great about it. (laughs) 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 Like, for me, church is neither here nor there. I feel like I'm in a lot of sacred spaces. I feel like I have amazing collaborators, and we get to co-create a lot of spaces for women of color that are very life-giving and help women connect to Jesus. I'm not giving up on Jesus. I love Jesus. I will never let the colonizer steal Jesus from me. But frankly, I find 11 to 1230 on Sundays a skadoosh triggering still. I find online church exhausting. But I adore creating community with women of color who are learning to trust themselves and learning to see the Bible in new ways. So I feel like in that way, I do more church than I ever have. But it's just different. Yeah. I could go my whole ass life without going through some of these boring ass Sunday services, I swear. (laughs) The quality is not always, it's usually not very high. The the question is presumptive. Like, I, without knowing every single guest speaker that's been on the podcast, I, just frankly, who you are as a person, I don't see you inviting everybody on the podcast as a guest speaker, someone who's like a part of a church that's rooted in white supremacy. Part of doing this work at some point is. No, we drink from different wells. Uh, And again, as I mentioned earlier, like the church that we started, it was in direct response, I think, to a lot of the racial tensions that were happening in the country. And we have an elder-led model of leadership there. That's something that's been life-giving for us. So I, yeah, she doesn't, and you don't have to be in that space. That's probably the the most basic of answers I have. (laughs) This is the only time I'll ever use this sentence. Not all Christians. But for real, though, I, I think that there are lots of, yes, there are a lot of colonized BIPOC churches, for real, for Absolutely. real. Absolutely. But there are a lot of communities who are trying different things yes. and who are very worth being connected to. Mm. I'll, I'll, I'm not shy about, I love my church. I love yeah. my church. I love what we get to do together. Yeah. And I go and stay connected because we're a group of people with shared vision for how the world could be and what it would mean for everyone to have a space to belong and to explore spirituality, to have depth of relationship with self, God, and others. And for me, that's like, that's not a bad, that's not a bad vision or bad call. But I know not everyone has a church like I do. And so I think I stay because I've seen something be good or I've created things that have been good when I haven't had those. But I don't know that, I think white evangelicalism is its own very specific type of colonizing and triggering and disembodying. And there are a lot of spaces outside of that that we may just not know. So I even think about a very white and old denomination, but that does love some of their work is the Episcopalians and the UCC who are reimagining church and liturgy and things in different ways that like, you may show up and be like, what is going on or what is this? But that are doing really valid and good ways of engaging with church that don't just look like two songs, prayer, (laughs) one song, emotional high, drop, sermon, giving, you know, (laughs) another song, bad joke from the pastor, a closing, and a reception. Like, that's a very Western model of church that doesn't actually reflect anything about the scriptures, and so I think we can find other ways. So I stay because I found something that's good for me, works for me, and that I like. I like the people there. So find a place where you like the people. And I guess I would say, if you're imagining possibilities for your family, I've just asked the question, who do I want my kids and family to grow up around? Um, Because a lot of the time, the people far 
are far more the benefit than whatever sermon is coming out of someone's mouth on a Sunday. And so mm -hmm. I, there are a lot of reasons to stay, basically. All right, so we're going to do a question from one of our queer siblings who identifies as ace, and they talk about that in their question. And what I want to do this question acknowledging that none of us identify as queer and so that so we are fully ill-equipped to <laughs> talk to the specifics and are going to be careful about that yeah. but i want to center this question because i think for queer folks not even centered in christian spaces in general and being invisibilized we want to counterbalance that and for ace folks specifically who experience marginal marginalization even within the lgbtq plus community mm -hmm. i just want to make specific space for folks who are particularly invisibilized so before i read the question i just want to name that there are that when folks identify as ace, it generally most broadly means that people experience either little or no sexual attraction. There are a lot of ways to identify as ace, three that I'll just name so that we just have a little bit more education about it. Um, one is being demisexual. That means that you essentially don't experience sexual attraction to someone unless you form a strong emotional bond first. Um, you could be gray ace or gray ace, which says that you're somewhere between asexual and sexual. Um, there's other terms to describe all of these things um or there are people that are in queer platonic relationships of various kinds and i actually really think christians should get better at queer platonic relationships which are relationships between friends that have a deep emotional bond that goes beyond kind of the boundaries of a traditional or more normative friendship i think a lot of folks in christian spaces already have those and it gets called things that it's not or like because of homophobia in the church mm -hmm. is really disincentivized in every way um, because of patriarchy and homophobia, homophobia. And so I just wanted to name that little bit on the front end just so that we're aware of what's happening to a lot of our siblings and how misunderstood folks are in churches that are obsessed with sex and marriage and heteronormativity and <laughs> cis-centered approaches to relationships that actually don't serve most of us, as is evidenced by the 50% divorce rate. So here's the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and can I just add to that, that I think that when people started to get open to the idea that maybe some people are gay or some people are lesbian they actually wanted to be very rigid though yeah. Yeah. like you are gay it looks just like this yes. and you are only attracted to people in this way yeah. then it could be tolerated if it felt like it could fit in a very clear container i think yes. part of what makes um conversations around being ace being demisexual is that it continues to have layers of complexity and nuance mm -hmm. that i think if people who are really committed to heteronormativity reject <laughs> yes <laughs> that makes sense yeah yes yeah. so so here's the question and i i'll name on the front end that i'll give a response that i um solicited from a friend i hate that word so much but it was the one that was the one that came to my mind um yeah I'll give a response from another queer person who's responding to this um, mm -hmm. as to not be a person acting like I have authority on something that Word. I do not, especially not only not being queer, but not being ace specifically. So um, they say, hi there, I'm a queer follower of Christ and identify as gay and on the ace spectrum. I'm sex repulsive and more than likely will never cross that boundary. That being said, it's always been my dream to have children, even more than having a partner, frankly. And I've only recently started feeling comfortable dating. I've never been on one probably due to a lot of internalized homophobia. That's so fair. There's a part of me that fears my asexuality will keep people from seeing me as a suitable or even desirable partner because I have no interest in sex. Is there a Bible? Is there a story in the Bible that speaks to this experience that you could offer me so I don't feel so alone? Mm. So I think the part that we can speak to is is that um, before I read this response from my friend. And it, I just feel like I just feel for you in the loneliness, um, mm -hmm. even if I can't relate to the specifics of of that and know that. 
I can only imagine what it would feel like to imagine no possibilities for long-term partnership or even having kids because of the rigidity of what Erna was talking mm-hmm. about and how we see those. And so I just was wondering if there's any kind of pastoral or even mm-hmm. like just thoughts that you have before I... Yeah, I, again, I want to come from the same posture as Brandy being like, mm, okay, I'm not queer, so I'm going to be all like up in these streets. But I feel like... Also, everyone who hasn't dated has some fear of rejection going into dating. And one of the things I love that Baby Gen Z is doing around conversations of sexuality and relationships is that they are just opening the conversation to so many possibilities that I feel like you can find somebody or some buddies who could create a relational situation that could be wonderful for you. So don't let that fear stop you from just exploring because I think that you would be amazed who and what options are out there. And what I love about a queer ethic is clarity of communication um, and respect for people's boundaries and honoring what is pleasurable, not just in the sexual sense, but in in desirable is really honored. And so I just think, um, I think it's worth the risk. Yeah. If you have those desires. That's good. Yeah, I also just think that I've been talking to some friends. There are stories in scripture of people being committed to each other without having a sexual relationship. So people like Ruth and Naomi or David and Jonathan or whatever, just to have where there there are these depths of relationships that yeah. we that we point out as being uniquely good and beautiful. And it's you know there's there's some caveats to all of those things, but I think that we do see in the Bible unconventional relationships to be sure (laughs) unconventional (laughs) partnerships and people journeying together in different ways um there's also a book called ace by angela chen that has some really beautiful examples of people who like a married couple basically has a an ace person be the third parent to their child so Mm -hmm. they become a unit of three two who are in a sexual and romantic relationship and one who is not but is an equal parent to that child Mm -hmm. and i just think that 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 book uh has helped me to imagine possibility differently in even my own unlearning of homophobia and heteronormativity Mm -hmm. and so i would just say that book and even just what what erna's saying that there's so much possibility but to that end uh, a friend sent this response saying i think that it's a a valid fear to think that people might not be interested in a partnership if they don't want sex honestly that is an important part of romantic partnerships for many people I also think that we live in a time that people are learning language and freedom to say what they want out of relationships, and there will be other people who want what they want. In other words, you're not alone. The more traditional way that relationships have worked is still available, but now it's not the only and acceptable way. There's a lot of, there are a lot more spaces for non-traditional relationships and queer spaces, which might feel scary for a Christian person who's used to more conservative thinking or spaces. Mm. Generally, I see ace people either be honest about what they need or make a lot of compromises to be in a relationship that doesn't really fit them, but they are able to have a family and get other wants met. I think that the best thing for many ace folks is to be open to partnership, not looking for the quote-unquote normal monogamous heteronormative way, because we don't fit into that, and we would and we would have to sacrifice or dissociate a lot of ourselves to fit into that. And with the right person, maybe they will want to be monogamous, but they would probably also need to be an ace person. So I just think the one principle I want to pull out of that that feels helpful beyond all of it being really helpful is just that being Christian 
um, puts the wind against you in, a, in terms of worldview to even answer these questions for yourself. Mm-hmm. That because the rigidity of Christianity often says you have to be like these certain things or there are consequences for your sexuality, for your relationships, for your life with God, for your life with community. And, there, and those consequences are really scary and almost always lead to more isolation. That it could feel like exploring your own sexuality or your dating or partnership or what you might want for yourself might feel like a really big risk and that there are communities of people who are doing that in a safe way already and that finding those places to be plugged into could be really helpful even if it's deeply uncomfortable to explore things outside of Christianity or outside of conservative Christianity that does offer a certain comfort in its rigidity because I think that that's just a true thing. And so I just want to name, we appreciate the question and want to continue to center queer voices and the experience of queer Christians because I think many of us who don't identify as queer don't recognize and thus invisibilize folks' experiences like yours. And so we see you, we care about you, yes, and we yes, want to yes. honor the very real things that you're that you're processing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> we love you. You're the best. All right. Here's our last question. We're chugging away here. Right. Bing, bing. Here's my situation in question. I'm a black associate pastor serving under a white... This is a pivot in tone, just so we know. Mm. I'm a black associate pastor serving under a white senior pastor of a church that is largely black. Ooh, Lord. Yeah. Mm. Almost every single topic that has been discussed in the white supremacy episode, in the white supremacy series, has been experienced in my context. Although I've decided I need to leave because the pastor is protected by the elders, the only group of people that truly hold him accountable, I'm wrestling with whether or not I should challenge them on my way out with all the ways the church is beholden to white centrality and how a refusal of the pastor to humbly decenter himself has contributed greatly to the exodus we've seen over the past several years. Any feedback would be appreciated. Mm. One get your freedom get out that place sounds toxic so i'm glad for you i coach a lot of women who are making decisions about leaving and then when they leave trying to figure out how to leave and what we often talk about is it's okay to go quietly often these spaces have caused so much trauma mental health exhaustion to say something or to blow something up requires a huge exertion of emotional energy and there is a huge amount of emotional pushback. I always equate, whenever you push against white supremacy, it is like throwing yourself against a brick wall at full speed. So you can go quietly and it's okay. You can also think of in degrees of confrontation. Whenever you put anything in writing, it's more serious. Whenever you name specific situations, it's more serious. And the more publicly... Right, You send it to the pastor on his own, you send it to the elders, you give it to the whole church. Right, The bigger the circle that you bring people in, the bigger the explosion. But I feel like you can do whatever that you want. <laughs> you don't owe them your silence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if people are doing a certain thing, then they should feel comfortable having that named. Yeah. Yes. Like, if you're going to live that way, other people get to name it and name the consequences of it. Yes. And that's not harm. So to me, I would say in your gut, what do you feel like you want to do and what do you feel like you, what feels liberating to you to do? That's how I think about it. I, you know, a bunch of things come to mind. I want to, I'll be very vulnerable for a moment. Uh, I was on staff at a very unhealthy church uh, back in Texas and uh, one of the ways in which it became healthy, the pastor was verbally, emotionally and spiritually abusive and it's kind of one of those, just a typical model, uh, just drenched in patriarchy. He's always right. No one can challenge his authority. 
you're there to be yes people and really to affirm him. And uh, I was younger and didn't know what in the world was going on and what I was talking about. And I like to ask questions. I always have. And questions was like the ultimate sign of disrespect to him. And I did not know that. And so he became, over time, he became verbally abusive, spiritually abusive. Um, he questioned my calling to ministry. He questioned my sexual orientation to people in public and in private. All these things that were incredibly offensive and harmful from someone who had been a pastor and also a boss. And I, in reflecting back on leaving, kind of feel like Jamar Tisby, kind of what they're talking about now, this whole process of like leave loud, like Arnold was saying. Spill all the tea on your way out and spill it to anybody who has a cup that wants to be able to drink it and partake. There's also, I think I look back on it and I think I like what I did, which was I didn't leave quietly anyone who asked. I was honest about it. I didn't feel the need to broadcast it precisely what Arnold was saying to do so. You're inviting yourself both to respond to the wrath that can come from that. And people who are in positions of power, they typically can wield that, not just in a way that's professionally harmful, but they will do very significant damage to your psyche. And so you've got to figure out what will be reconciled with your own soul. It sounds like, and I could be dead wrong in this, but kind of if I put myself in your shoes, the idea of leading quietly doesn't sit well with you. It also doesn't seem like a voice where you're like, let me throw everybody under the bus and just print all the receipts and post them everywhere. I think you can do an open letter when you choose to. It's not sealed. You sell one to the elders, to the deacons, and to the pastor, the staff, and you mention all of those things and why you're leaving. That's very clear. It's concise. And I think you can kind of shake the dust off your feet in that capacity. So really what Ernest is saying, I agree with. Figure out what works for you. What if you look back, not six months from now, but 10 years from now, if you look back and say, yes, I honored that space and I left in a way in which still I maintained my integrity. I think you can take that type of action with a healthy resolve. One thing I would say, too, is that it matters what you have or have not said before, because that will determine the amount of energy that you have to put into this. So if you've been kind of clanging the gong of like, hey, this isn't right. Hey, people are leaving for this reason. If there's been a lot of voice already about it and you're adding to that, that takes far less energy than you've never said anything and they're getting it out of nowhere. Because then a lot of the times when that happens, it becomes a a smear campaign against you and your character. And so I think you have to ask, like, who am I dealing with? Because there are some situations where it'll be like, well, you didn't tell us. And like, if you were real, like some of the narratives that get spun about people who push back are really deep. So it could be like, well, this person didn't say anything to us. And Matthew 18 would say that you need to come to a person in private, bring two people along and then bring it before the church. And they skip the first two steps and therefore aren't biblical or in Christ. Am I wrong? No, I'm just tired yeah. of hearing you describe <laughs> yeah. it because that, that nonsense. Was disgust in hearing yeah. yeah. And so I just think that there are ways that I would ask the question, who are you dealing with mm-hmm. and what do you hope will come from it? Because yes. I think sometimes we just leave, if, if you're leaving just because it's cathartic for you to leave loudly, that is a valid reason in and of itself. Mm-hmm. If it's because you want them to change or something to be different, that's that's another reason. There are a lot of valid reasons to want to leave in the ways that you want to leave. I know personally in my own current experience, I just left uh, ministry within our varsity after almost 10 years and like... I've been having to ask the question, do I say things about my experience or do I not? And there have been a lot of things that have come into that. And I think that part of it is asking, like, what do I actually want to say? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and why do I want to say that? And who do I want to say that for? And if it's just like to critique the system, to critique the system, do I want to do that? Or do I want to do something because it means that people of color in the organization might feel like there's space for them or like, they're not going to be gaslit all the time by things happening in the organization. And I just say the name because, again, like, Erna, you're saying, like, if we don't want things to be happening, you know, if we don't want to talk about things publicly, then don't do them publicly. So I just yeah. want to name yeah. that it might feel tense for people that I'm naming specifics. But I just think that 
my process has been asking, what do I want to have happen and what pace do I need to do that at mm-hmm. if I'm going to do that? And so I would also name for you that you can leave and not have your, like, the letter be dropped on your last day. You can take yeah. time to think and to process and to feel what distance from the community looks like and if that shapes how you want to be loud or not be loud or whatever it is that you want to do. So I just want to name there's lots of ways, lots of reasons, and all of them are valid, but all of them take different amounts of your emotional energy and the well-being of your body. And I don't think that every one of those reasons is worth it. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're wounded and hurt like now, if there have been actions that have been like, you know, deleterious, my word for 2020, to your heart, your mind, and your soul, don't take any action right now. Like, if you're doing it from a place of woundedness, whatever you're trying to communicate, it's not going to come out right and well. Like, precisely what Brandy was saying, take some time and actually think about what you want to say and make sure you're doing it from a place of health so that way you can communicate everything that you want to from a place of integrity and peace, I think, in the midst of doing that. Also, that pastor sounds like the worst. Facts. Facts. Also, places don't want to change. Yeah. That's also what makes facts. me sad. Yeah. So to me, it has to be like, what do you need to feel peace? Yeah. But if places don't want to change, they don't change. Yeah. That's, that's the realest Mm -hmm. thing there was. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, friends. Well, Brandy, how do you feel coming to the end of season two here? That is the the question. Yes. Who are you, Brandy, now after two seasons of doing this podcast? Yes. How are you different than when you started? Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> the interviewer right. becomes That's the interviewee. Right. I'm, really, I'm really not used to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I feel. I think I first of all just feel super honored to be on this journey with so many people who are trying to figure out healthier ways to know self, God, and others. I feel humbled to be trusted because I, you know, I have a lot of one-way conversations with people who I'll never meet. You know, yes, like, yes. and people listen to my voice a lot, and it feels both weighty and intimidating and really humbling and honoring and beautiful. Uh, I feel lucky to get to have conversations every week with people I care about, about things that I care about and love. And like, I get to do this for work and that's kind of a dream. I feel pretty different than I was a year ago. Mm. Um, I think these conversations, these dialogues have made me more open-minded. Like I think I've Mm. learned a lot of ways that I have still been committed to a lot of conservative evangelical values internally in really deep ways that I've been challenged on by guests and friends and listeners and people who just give me good feedback. Mm. Um, I also think I've become less sensitive to pushback and feedback and Mm. become more willing to go, hey, that's something I've never thought about. Give me a minute because I need to internalize that. Mm. Uh, I have been in therapy through the entire duration of the podcast. And Mm. so there's been a lot of intersection of my work and like feeling responsible and just like my own emotional growth. And so I feel like I'm really, I'm a way more emotionally healthy person mm. kind of leading this little endeavor. Um, and I feel really excited to get to continue to do it and move forward. Cause like anyone who knows anything about the podcast knows, I thought it was going to be 10 episodes <laughs> just kind of commemorating like a little experience in my life. And now we get to tackle systems that oppress kind of head on in ways yeah, that are helpful yeah. and meaningful. So I think I feel so lucky and so honored and, happy about it so i don't know it's fun and it's scary and sometimes i joke that i became the accidental pastor of a digital mega church but yes, <laughs> like <thanks. laughs> i never imagined i could do something that's like so beautiful and life-giving and it's really cool mm, i love yeah. that that yeah. feels like that's a awesome. beautiful reflection to end on yeah yes yeah thanks for asking and thanks for listening y'all we just closed out 51 episodes um this will be 52 that's a lot of time. That is so many episodes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
So we're going to take a little break, Patreon folks. You're going to get a few more episodes in the break, but we're going to take a break until about the beginning of November so I can do some rigorous research and prep for this next season on patriarch and purity culture because Annie and I did some work around it and y'all, it is a doozy and I feel... I, I just need some space to do my own work, emotional work, work with Jesus to make sure that we're putting out something that's actually meaningful. So you'll hear some things from us in the next few months. We'll still be putting a few things out, but we will not be putting out weekly episodes for a little bit now. So see you in a few months, I guess. Goodbye. Peace. Bye. Bye.